neglected to say this earlier, but I'm Pastor Cal. I'm the pastor here at Hope, and we're really glad to have you with us this morning. Um, right now, any children that would like to go and be a part of our children's ministry can exit right out these back doors. We've got some wonderful people who would love to teach them a Bible story at their age level and uh, do some activities, and there's some singing, and just have a great time. So anyway, they can be dismissed out there. The rest of you, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, right at the beginning of the New Testament. And turn over there, or call it up on whatever device you use, or it'll be on the screens behind me as well. We're beginning today a series of messages for the Christmas season, and uh, some of you know this is one of my favorite times of the year to preach. I just love doing Advent or Christmas uh, series of, of sermons, but this year we're calling it Family Christmas, and the subtitle is Investigating the Family of Jesus. Now, Christmas is when we celebrate that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, Mary, 100% God, 100% uh, man to dwell with us on earth as the perfect God-man and to ultimately to die in our place for our sins. And Christmas is when we celebrate the fulfillment of the promise that God had made all through the Old Testament that he would send us a savior, that he would send a Messiah, that he would send someone to rescue his people. And when we start thinking about some of the traditions that surround how we celebrate Christmas individually, Generally, if I say, how do you celebrate Christmas? Most of us probably come up with some tradition that involves family, spending time with family, being around family, arguing with family, whatever. Uh, we, most of us think of celebrating uh, this season with family. Some traditions that we have in our families have been passed down for many generations. Maybe it's a special pecan pie recipe or uh, up here, something else, because that's more, I recognize the pecan pie is more of a southern thing where my mom's from. Um, but maybe it's some tradition that you've got passed down for many generations, but during the month of December, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at a few of the people in Jesus's family line and what their individual stories tell us about God and about Jesus. The book of Matthew opens with giving us a genealogy of Jesus. Now, I'm just going to guess that most of you probably don't think, wow, what am I going to read in the Bible today? I think I'm going to sit down and read a genealogy. You know, the who begat who. Most of you probably are not doing that. Some of you probably either skip over these or skim right through the list of names. However, the Lord included these in his word for a reason. And it was so that we would know the lineage of Jesus to show that he was who he said he was, and that he was doing what the scripture said he would do. And it proves that Jesus is a descendant of the line of David. And if you know any of the Old Testament, and if you don't, that's okay. But it was very important because the Messiah was to come from the line of David. And as you read through Jesus' genealogy, what you start to notice is that there's some people with some sketchy backgrounds in there. Right, And what I want you to see over the next three or four weeks is this. If there are room for people like that in Jesus' family line, then there's room for someone like you in his family as well. The first person we're going to look at, we find in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Just to give us some context to bring us up to this point, I'm going to read Matthew 1. 1 through 5. This is part of the genealogy of Jesus, so get ready for some names, all right? Matthew 
chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand. God, as we come to this time of looking into uh, Jesus's family, I pray you'd help us see the truth in your word. That as we take this name and we follow back and look at the story from their life, that we would see the truth in your word, that we would understand what it means in its context, and that we would understand how it applies directly to our lives and to this Christmas season. I pray you would increase and I I would decrease, that there's anything that's just me, that you would just clear it out, and that you would speak clearly through your word to your people. This is about you, Jesus. It's not about me. It's about you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in verse 5, we see a lady named Rahab who's mentioned. And Rahab's story is found in Joshua chapter 2. So you can go ahead and flip all the way back there if you want. That's actually, I faked you out with Matthew. We're actually going to be in Joshua. Okay, you're like, ooh, New Testament genealogy. And then I was like, oh, we're going back to the Old Testament. Now there are a few reasons... If you know anything about Rahab, and if you don't, that's cool, I'm going to tell you. But if you know anything about Rahab, there are a few reasons why Rahab being mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus should stand out to us and maybe cause our eyebrows to perk up a little bit. Okay? Jesus' genealogy mentions five women. That's weird, because in, typically, in biblical genealogies, only occasionally do you find women mentioned. And in Jesus' here in Matthew, we find five women who are mentioned. That should stand out to us about Rahab because, first of all, she's female. Now, Luke doesn't seem to mention them in his genealogy of Jesus that he gives in Luke chapter 3. And um, theologian Sinclair Ferguson suggests that Matthew is hinting at three important biblical principles by mentioning these women, and particularly who these women were and what they had in common. And these principles are directly connected to the reasons why Rahab's appearance here seems kind of odd to us, and, and that first reason being that she was female. Now, I'm going to sprinkle his reasons throughout this, okay? The second reason that her appearance in the genealogy of Jesus is noticeable is that she was an outsider, She was not part of Israel at the start of this. She was a a Gentile. And Ferguson points out that this hints at the biblical principle that God extends his grace beyond the people of Israel and brings Gentiles into his covenant, which we know that because most of us here are not Jewish, right? And he has extended his covenant, extended his grace beyond Israel to those who are not Jewish. And the third reason maybe the biggest reason why it's weird that she would appear in the genealogy of Jesus is because she was a prostitute, 
Rahab was a prostitute. I told you some of these folks had sketchy backgrounds, didn't I? Ferguson writes that this shows the biblical principle that God overcomes the effects of sin and shame as he works out his promises, and God keeps his promises in ways that we never could have anticipated. But that's, that's the Christmas story too, right? The people were not expecting the Messiah to come as a baby. They were expecting a conquering king on a white horse coming in to overthrow Rome. They were not, or maybe a huge religious leader coming in to overthrow it. They were not expecting a baby in a manger. God had promised to bring his people into the promised land. And here they had come, led by Moses. Moses had passed away. Joshua had taken control. Moses had, had seceded Joshua up, had, let, had, had brought Joshua into leadership. And they were here at the promised land, ready to take the land that God had promised them. And the city of Jericho, the mighty city, walled city of Jericho, stood in the way. And that's when we come to Joshua chapter 2. Let's begin reading. And we're going to read the whole thing. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the, women, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. 
Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. That if anyone goes out of, out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and he, we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you made us swear, that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and, they tied the, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is a pretty incredible story. Um, I love any story where someone is lowered out a window in a wall to get away. I just think it's awesome. I think it's great. In movies, when it happens, I just think it's great. I remember uh, one time in college, actually, uh, and this just reminds me of this. uh, One time in college, some friends of mine pulled a prank. They lived on the second floor of a dorm. They pulled a prank on the soccer team. And the soccer team got them back by putting all of the vending machines and the uh, furniture from the lobby uh, in front of their door in the hallway so they couldn't get out of their door and go to class in the morning. And they heard it happening. They could hear the chung, chung. I mean, you could hear a vending machine coming down the hallway, right? And um, they heard it happening. And so they called their friend because they locked the dorms at night. And you had to have somebody let you in. Uh, and they tied their sheets together. And just like in a movie, right? And and climbed out the window uh, and then went around and our, our other friend let them in. They spent the night there. So the next morning they went to class or whatever and they came back in and, you know, were just kind of looking at the vending machines there and haha, you didn't get us kind of thing. But anyway, so she, I think this story is, is incredible. It's, it's very, for me, it's very visual thinking about you've got lowering down, you've got a scarlet cord, you've got uh, the, all the city with the walls, the king, the pursuers, the city gate. But what did Rahab do? What did Rahab do? First, if you're taking notes, Rahab's reception. How did she receive the spies? Well, she received them. Joshua sent the two spies in the land to check out Jericho, to find out what was going on, right? This is smart. This is good leadership. He sends a couple of spies in to take a look at the land, and they came to her house. Now, there's no mention of any kind of illicit relationship between the spies and Rahab. It's likely that her house, as well as being the home of, of her as a prostitute, was uh, also probably like an inn or a way station kind of place where it would have been a logical place to stay if you were seeking information about the city, okay? And they, they didn't apparently do such a great job of staying undercover because word got out to the king that there were spies in town. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow the king knows to send to Rahab and ask about the spies. Apparently word's gotten out that not only are they in town, but they've come to her house. They've come into her house. So he sends to ask about it. And Rahab responds. And so if you're, again, if you're taking notes, point number two is just Rahab's response. How does she respond? We're going to look at ways she responds to two people. First, how she responds to the king. And second, how she responds to the spies. First, to the king. She tells the king that she didn't know who the men were, 
and that they'd already taken off. She even tells them, hey, hurry up, get out there, you could probably still catch them. Now this response generally brings up an ethical question. It generally brings up and, and says, wait, 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 so Rahab lied or used deception to save people, and then she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus, and we're trying to square that ethical question of, of her deceiving the king in order to protect the spies. Well, first of all, it's important to remember that her deception is never the focus of what's going on here, but instead it, the, the focus is on the fact that she feared the Lord and had faith that she and her family could be rescued from the oncoming attack. And the narrative story here does not address the ethics of the issue. When Rahab is committed for her faith in the New Testament, It never mentions her methods. They're not commented on. This is not, and we need to understand this about this, this is not a prescriptive narrative, okay? This is describing the event. It's not prescribing the way that you should act in your life, okay? It's not a prescriptive narrative. It's not telling you that this is the way you should do things. But also remember, she was was a Gentile. She was a pagan. She, She was not an Israelite. She would have not lived under the laws such as the Ten Commandments, and the prohibition against, you know, lying, right? So her response to the king was to protect the spies. This goes back to that old, so when I, when I was in seminary, I know you guys were just dying for a seminary story. Uh, when I was in seminary, I took a class called Christian Ethics. And there's a big old thick book, which I still have, and I actually highly recommend it if you're interested in such things. Uh, called uh, uh, Ethics for a Brave New World by Feinberg and Feinberg. Okay, it's a big thick book. And the, class, the way they did the class was you had to read the book and then you went to the class for like a week and it was like seven or eight hours a day of, of class, lecture and stuff. And then you had a month after that week to write like a 20-page paper about an ethical issue, okay? Um, one of the questions that came up in that class that I remember very well because it's a famous question is when we talk about Rahab or ethics in this situation of protecting life and being deceptive in order to protect life or things like that. The thing that always comes up is uh, in Nazi Germany, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the idea is if you're Dietrich Bonhoeffer and you're, let's say you're hiding Jews in your basement and the Nazis come and they say, do you have Jews in your house? You know that if you say yes, uh, then they're going to die, right? They're going to take them and they're going to die. Um, Uh, And if you say no, you're lying, and Bonhoeffer was a Christian, right? You're lying, and you're uh, therefore sinning. And your allegiance to God, obviously, is higher than your allegiance to uh, a, a nation or a country. So what do you do? And that's the ethical question that gets brought up in, in when we start talking about these kind of things. Now, in that instance, and I think it, I think it applies here too, um, there's the idea of, and this is real heady, I'm sorry, but it's called prima facie. In other words, what's of first importance? Like what is the, the most thing? It is protecting life, right? Those made in the image of God. And so it, it, doesn't, make that, it doesn't make that not a lie, and it doesn't make it, okay to conduct yourself in that way we should not be deceptive we should not be lying um but but in that illustration he would be protecting life right now here it's important to remember what i just said a little bit ago her method is never the focus 
What is the focus is the fact that she believed God, the fact that she feared the Lord. And it's real easy for us to get caught up in some of the minutia and miss the main point. And so I don't want us to do that. In Hebrews 11.31, the writer of Hebrews, we just talked about this a few weeks ago, includes Rahab with the great examples of faith because she welcomed the spies, because she welcomed them in. So that's her response to the king. But what's her response to these spies? Well, I said she welcomed them in. She received them. She kept them safe. She helped them escape. And beginning in verse 9, Rahab gives an astonishing awareness of the history of Israel and the plan of God to give them the land of Canaan. It, it's a little uh, alarming how much she knows about them, isn't it? As a prostitute living in the city wall of a walled city that they're about to conquer. She knows an awful lot about Israel, doesn't she? She tells them that she knows that the Lord is God and asks them to keep her family safe from the destruction that's about to be visited upon Jericho. Now in in Joshua chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, we see that. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brother brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab responded to the spies. She responded to what was about to happen. She responded to, uh, to this understanding that she had of God, who God was, with faith. She feared and trusted God and his plan more than the king or the other people in Jericho. She probably wasn't the only one who had heard, obviously she wasn't the only one who had heard what God had done, right? Because she said their hearts had melted, they melted away, they were afraid of the Israelites. She wasn't the only one who had heard. She's the only one we have record of, though, that believed that the Lord was God. And she had an opportunity to do something about it. Later in the story, we find out that her family are rescued and integrated into Israel. And in fact, she ends up marrying into the nation and into the family lineage of Jesus. And her faith that God was God and would do what he said for Israel was not something she only gave word of mouth to. She didn't just say, yeah, I believe the Lord is God. Good luck out there, spies. She didn't do that. She didn't just say, yes, I believe. She did something about it. Her faith, her belief, her fear in the Lord moved her to act. It moved her to action. I want you to see that today. Her belief in the power of God moved her to act. If she was discovered by the king, she probably would have faced some pretty serious consequences. But she feared the Lord more than anything that could happen to her as a result of her faith-led action. Friends, faith leads to obedience. When someone is constantly disobedient to what the Lord has commanded, I question the presence of faith in their life. When our words and our obedience don't line up, we need to seek the Lord and see what the issue is. Because faith leads to action. Now, look, we're, we're, we're all sinners. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're, we're going to mess that up, right? We're going to not always do the right thing. But the grand story of our life of faith should be it leading to obedience. 
Rahab's obedience out of her faith ended up with her being rescued. So after her response, point number three, we see Rahab's rescue. How'd the spies respond to her? Well, in in verse 14, we see, And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, and when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So she lets them down by a rope through the window of her house that was built into the city wall. And then they have this conversation, and it, it was not till I was studying for this, reading for this, that I realized that they have this conversation after she lets them down. So I don't know exactly if she's like leaning out the window and they're, and they're down at the bottom and they're talking, which gives a really funny kind of comical element to this, doesn't it? And that's how my mind works, right? She, she's like, hey, one last thing before you go, you know? She lowers them down or she's lowering them down. Are they talking while she's lo- I, She lowers them down. They have this conversation in verses 16 through 19. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and you shall gather into your house, your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. So Rahab does this. She takes the scarlet cord, ties it in the window. The Israelites come. They march around Jericho as many times as commanded by the Lord. You could read all about it in Jericho chapter 6. I remember one time I was speaking at uh, the boys' elementary school in Winterset, Iowa about this, and I had the kids get up and all march around because I had all these little elementary kids, and I was trying to keep them like paying attention while I'm speaking at chapel, right? And I had them get up and march around and yell. Like march around, you remember this? March around and yell all around the sanctuary where we were. And so they, they march around. They do exactly as the Lord had commanded. God was going to flatten the walls. And they were supposed to go in and kill and destroy everything and everyone. And it was, it was devoted to the Lord for destruction. That's the language the Bible uses, devoted to the Lord for destruction. But Rahab and all those in her house were to be spared. And they would know it by the scarlet cord in the window. So Israel did as the Lord commanded. And they captured the city. But how did Joshua, how did the leader, remember the spies did this, how did the leader handle Rahab? How did he handle her? Well, if you were to flip ahead to Joshua chapter 6, verses 22 through 25, you would see how things ended up for Rahab. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent. To spy out Jericho. 
I'm going to talk for a minute about the scarlet cord that she tied in her window. It reminds us of one thing that is before this in the Old Testament and points ahead to something else as a, as a reminder. It reminds us her marking her house by, hanging, by hang, putting the scarlet cord in the window so that the army would pass over her house and not kill those inside of it. Sounds a little bit like when the Israelites were captives in Egypt, when they were slaves in Egypt, and God sent the plagues, and the last one was the Passover, right? Where they were to take the blood and put it on the doorpost, and their house would be passed over, and their firstborn would not be killed. They would be passed over for that judgment, for that firstborn the plague would not strike them. They would be passed over because they were marked with that scarlet blood on the doorpost. This passing over of Rahab's house kind of seems like a bit of a sort of a second Passover, a newer Passover. God, except this time, he's not rescuing a people that he had chosen for himself, but he's saving a Gentile prostitute and making her part of the people of God. So the first Passover, he's saving a people for himself and getting them out of slavery, out of Egypt. And here, he's rescuing a, someone who's not even an Israelite and is a prostitute and making her a part of his people. This should remind us of the Jesus who we celebrate. Jesus, who was the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus, who through his life, death, and resurrection adopts sinners like you and me into his family. Rahab believed and her faith is commended when she's mentioned later in the New Testament. She got a reputation of faith. She got a reputation of faith, Rahab's reputation. In the New Testament, Rahab is known as a woman of faith. I suppose you can imagine the reputation she would have had as a prostitute in the city of Jericho. Imagine you're sitting down with your family at Christmas dinner and your grown son brings home a nice young lady for you to meet. You're talking, small talk. Cut up the turkey or the ham or goose, whatever you eat. I don't know if anybody here actually eats goose, but there you go. And you're cutting it up. You're talking. And you turn to this nice young lady who your son seems to be quite taken with and say, hey, uh, what is it that you do? And she says, oh, well, I'm a prostitute over in Rockford. Choke on your eggnog, wouldn't you? But in redemptive history, we have Rahab, a prostitute who goes from that reputation to in the book of James being used along with Abraham as examples of faith and action combined. James 2.25 And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Rahab had faith and she acted upon it. I mentioned this earlier, but it's so key. Her faith was active. It was a catalyst in her life that catalyzed her, that springboarded her into these good works. The works were, were not what saved her. 
but they were an outgrowth of the surrender to the Lord God, of her surrender to the Lord God. This is what God does. This is what God does. Listen closely. He takes sinners like me, and through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he gives us a new purpose, a new hope, and he moves us to act out on our faith. And the point of this is not to praise Rahab or be in awe of her. No, not at all. The point is to reveal and stand in awe of the God who came to dwell among us, even though we didn't deserve him. A God who took on human flesh in the frail body of a baby. And it wasn't to perfect people that the Savior came. It was to imperfect people that the perfect Savior came. Jesus came into a family line to a genealogy of messed up people because that's the only kind of people there are. I tell people, we're not perfect here. If you are perfect, you should leave because you will, we, will, we will mess you up. We will mess you right up. It was to imperfect people that a perfect Savior came because that's the only kind of people there are. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says all. That's everybody. That means level playing field. None of us, I'm up here, but I'm not above you. It's level playing field. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 3.10-12, it tells us, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But listen to this good news. Listen to this good news. Romans 5, verse 8. But God... Let me stop there. Are those not just the sweetest words? But God. But God. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While still a liar, while still a prostitute, while still a cheater on your taxes, while, while still someone with a porn addiction, Christ died for us. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Rahab's story confirms God's welcome of even the most depraved sinner. Even someone the world sees as dirty and unlovable. The Apostle Paul knew this in the New Testament. He wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15 this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The Apostle Paul saying, I'm the worst one. At this time, I'm going to invite our musicians to come back to the front and uh, get ready to play our final song. Let me say this. You may have royally messed up your life. You may sit there and think that, you know what, Pastor? I know you think you're bad, but I am the worst sinner I know. I want to tell you, I'm also the worst sinner I know. Because I know what goes on between these two ears, right? I know what goes on in here and in here. 
You may be the worst sinner you know. You probably are the worst sinner you know. I'm the worst sinner I know. Paul was the worst sinner he knew, he said, of whom I am the foremost. The chief of sinners, I believe, is how he would... You may have royally messed up your life. You may be sitting there thinking, but here's the thing. And this is the whole theme of this whole family Christmas series. There was room in Jesus' family for Rahab. There was room in Israel among his chosen people. There was room in his family for Rahab. We find her in his genealogy. We find her mentioned as a woman of faith in the New Testament later on. And if there's room for Rahab in Jesus' family, good news, friend, there's room in Jesus' family for you too. And scripture tells us to repent of our sin and believe the good news, believe the gospel that Jesus is who he said he says he is, did what he said he would do, that he is 100% man, 100% God, came to earth, lived a perfect life, gave that perfect life on the cross in our place for our sins and three days later rose from the grave and that when we place when we repent of our sin turn away from our sin and turn and put our faith and our trust and our hope in him that he took our sin on the cross took the judgment for our sin the wrath of God for our sin upon himself and that he gives us his righteousness his right standing before God and imparts that imputes that to us so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as a sinner anymore. He sees us as righteous, the righteousness of Christ. And that's what I want for you. That's what God wants for you today. And so if you're someone, you're out there and you're thinking, you know what, pastor, I am a Christian. I've trusted Jesus. I believe the gospel. But you're like, but man, I've, man, I've, I've done so much. I'm such a disappointment to God. There is room for Rahab. There's still room for you because he died for whatever your sin is too. You may be someone who's never met Jesus. You've, you've never truly believed the gospel. Maybe you've never heard this before. I would love to talk with you more about that. To get a hold of me after service. I'll be around out there. Also, you can connect us through our website and all of that and set up a time to talk about how you can know Jesus. But it's really as simple as believe the good news of the gospel that I just spoke. Repent of your sin and surrender to him, trust in him, repent and believe. That's which we, we make it really hard, but that was the message John the Baptist preached. That was the message Jesus preached, repent and believe the good news. <laughs> trust Jesus for salvation. And that's what I invite you to this morning. The rest of you, I would invite you to take this good news with you when you leave. And this week, pick somebody one person if you want to get really ambitious pick more, it's fine but pick someone and tell them why you celebrate Christmas tell them this good news I celebrate Christmas because, or I, because I celebrate the birth of a, of a savior who would use a prostitute to advance his kingdom I celebrate a savior who would use someone like me to advance his kingdom. Would you stand and pray with me this morning?
Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you that we have all of these snapshots, these glimpses throughout Scripture of what you're like, of the kind of Savior you are, of the kind of hope that you offer to us every day. Help us trust you. Help us believe. And like we saw in Rahab, I pray that our faith would not be words only. Because what good is that? But that our faith would become action. That we would see the things you've commanded of those who trust in you and we would obey. Not because of some legalism in our lives. Not because of trying to earn your love, but because you've already loved us. We would seek to honor and serve you, Jesus. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who's never heard the message of the gospel, I pray today would be their day of salvation, the day they would surrender it all to you, Jesus, to repent of sin, turn away from their sin, and believe the good news that you died in our place for our sin, Jesus, and that you rose again from the dead. Give us an urgency with the message of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Would you join us and sing one final song? Thank God for it.